Chapter 11 of Atlantic Classics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Grenholm. The Greek Genius by John J. Chapman. The teasing perfection of Greek literature will perhaps excite the world long after modern literature is forgotten. Shakespeare may come to his end and lie down among the Egyptians, but Homer will endure forever. We hate to imagine such an outcome as this, because while we love Shakespeare, we regard the Greek classics merely with an overwhelmed astonishment. But the fact is that Homer floats in the central stream of history. Shakespeare is an eddy. There is, too, a real difference between ancient and modern art, and the enduring power may be on the side of antiquity. The classics will always be the playthings of humanity, because they are types of perfection like crystals. They are pure intellect, like demonstrations in geometry. Within their own limitations, they are examples of miracle, and the modern world has nothing to show that resembles them in the least. As no builder has built like the Greeks, so no writer has written like the Greeks. In edge, in delicacy, in proportion, in accuracy of effect, they are as marble to our sandstone. The perfection of the Greek vehicle is what attacks the mind of the modern man and gives him dreams. What relation these dreams bear to Greek feeling, it is impossible to say, probably a very remote and grotesque relation. The scholars who devote their enormous energies to a life-and-death struggle to understand the Greeks always arrive at states of mind which are peculiarly modern. The same thing may be said of the severest types of biblical scholar. J. B. Strauss, for instance, gave his life to the study of Christ and, as a result, has left an admirable picture of the German mind of 1850. Goethe, who was on his guard if ever a man could be, was still a little deceived in thinking that the classic spirit could be recovered. He left imitations of Greek literature, which are admirable in themselves, and rank among his most characteristic works, yet which bear small resemblance to the originals. The same may be said of Milton and of Racine. The Greeks seem to have used their material, their myths and ideas, with such supernal intellect that they leave this material untouched for the next comer. Their gods persist, their mythology is yours and mine. We accept the toys, the whole baby house which has come down to us. We walk in and build our own dramas with their blocks. What a man thinks of influences him, though he chants to know little about it and the power which the ancient world has exerted over the modern has not been shown in proportion to the knowledge or scholarship of the modern thinker, but in proportion to his natural force. The Greek tradition, the Greek idea, became an element in all subsequent life, and one can no more dig it out and isolate it 
than one can dig out or isolate a property of the blood. We do not know exactly how much we owe to the Greeks. Keats was inspired by the very idea of them. They were an obsession to Dante, who knew not the language. Their achievements have been pressing in upon the mind of Europe and enveloping it with an atmospheric appeal ever since the Dark Ages. Of late years, we have come to think of all subjects as mere departments of science, and we are almost ready to hand over Greece to the specialist. We assume that scholars will work out the history of art. But it is not the right of the learned and scholarly only to be influenced by the Greeks, but also of those persons who know no Greek. Greek influence is too universal an inheritance to be entrusted to scholars, and the specialist is the very last man who can understand it. In order to obtain a diagnosis of Greek influence, one would have to seek out a sort of specialist on humanity at large. Roman one, Since we cannot find any inspired teacher to lay before us the secrets of Greek influence, the next best thing would be to go directly to the Greeks themselves and to understand their works freshly, almost innocently. But to do this is not easy. The very Greek texts themselves have been established through modern research, and the footnotes are the essence of modernity. The rushing modern world passes like an express train. As it goes, it holds up a mirror to the classic world, a mirror ever-changing and ever-false. For upon the face of the mirror rests the lens of fleeting fashion. We can no more walk straight to the Greeks then we can walk straight to the moon. In America, the natural road to the classics lies through the introductions of German and English scholarship. We are met, as it were, on the threshold of Greece by guides who address us confidently in two very dissimilar modern idioms and who overwhelm us with complacent and voluble instructions. According to these men, we have nothing to do but listen to them, if we would understand Greece. Before entering upon the subject of Greece, let us cast a preliminary and disillusioning glance upon our two guides, the German and the Briton. Let us look once at each of them with an intelligent curiosity, so that we may understand what manner of men they are and can make allowances in receiving the valuable and voluble assistance which they keep whispering into our ears throughout the tour. The guides are indispensable, but this need not prevent us from studying their temperaments. If it be true that modern scholarship acts as a lens through which the classics are to be viewed, we can never hope to get rid of all the distortions but we may make scientific allowances and may correct results. We may consider certain social laws of refraction. For example, spectacles, beer, sausages. We may regard the variations of the compass due to certain local customs, namely the Anglican communion, school honor, pears soap. In all this we sin not, but pursue intellectual methods. The case of Germany illustrates the laws of refraction very pleasantly. 
the extraordinary lenses which were made there in the nineteenth century are famous now and will remain as curiosities hereafter during the last century learning won the day in germany to an extent never before known in history it became an unwritten law of the land that none but learned men should be allowed to play with pebbles if a man had been through the mill of the doctorate however he received a certificate as a dreamer the passion which mankind has for using its imagination could thus be gratified only by men who had been brilliant scholars the result was a race of monsters of whom nietzsche is the greatest the early social life of these men was contracted they learned all they knew while sitting on a bench the classroom was their road to glory they were aware that they could not be allowed to go out and play in the open until they had learned their lessons thoroughly they therefore became prize boys when the great freedom was at last conferred upon them they roamed through greek mythology and all other mythologies and erected labyrinths in which the passions of childhood may be seen gambling with the discoveries of adult miseducation the gravity with which the pundits treated each other extended to the rest of the world because in the first place they were more learned than anyone else and in the second many of them were men of genius the finds of modern archaeology have passed through the hands of these men and have received from them the labels of current classification after all these pundits resemble their predecessors in learning scholarship is always a specialized matter and it must be learned as we learn a game scholarship always wears the parade of finality and yet suffers changes like the moon these particular scholars are merely scholars their errors are only the errors of scholarship due for the most part to extravagance and ambition a new idea about hellas meant a new reputation in default of such an idea a man's career is manque he is not an intellectual after discounting ambition we have left still another cause for distrusting the labors of the german professors this distrust arises from a peep into the social surroundings of the caste here is a great authority on the open-air life of the greeks he knows all about hellenic sport here is another who understands the brilliant social life of attica he has written the best book upon athenian conversation and the marketplace here is still a third he has reconstructed greek religion at last we know all these miracles of learning have been accomplished in the library without athletics without conversation without religion when i think of greek civilization of the swarming thieving clever gleaming-eyed greeks of the bay of salamis and of the hermes of praxiteles and then cast my eyes on the greatest authority my guide my teuton master with his barbaric babble and his ham-bone and his self-importance i begin to wonder whether i cannot somehow get rid of the man and leave him behind alas we cannot do that we can only remember 
his traits. Our British mentors, who flank the German scholars as we move gently forward toward Greek feeling, form so complete a contrast to the Teutons that we can hardly believe that both kinds can represent genuine scholarship. The Britons are gentlemen, afternoon callers, who eat small cakes, row on the Thames, and are all for morality. They are men of letters. They write in prose and in verse, and belong to the aesthetic fraternity. They, like the Teutons, are attached to institutions of learning, namely to Oxford and Cambridge. They resemble the Germans, however, in but a single trait, the conviction that they understand Greece. The thesis of the British bell letterists, to which they devote their energies, might be stated thus. British culture includes Greek culture. They are very modern, very English, very sentimental, these British scholars. While the German doctors use Greek as a stalking horse for Teutonic psychology, these English gentlemen use it as a dressmaker's model upon which they exhibit homemade English lyrics and British stock morality. The lesson which Browning sees in Alcestis is the same that he gave us in James Lee's Wife. Browning's appeal is always the appeal to robust feeling as the salvation of the world. Gilbert Murray, on the other hand, sheds a sad, clinging, Tennysonian morality over Dionysus. Jowett is happy to announce that Plato is theologically sound and gives him a ticket of leave to walk anywhere in England. Swinburne clings to that belief in sentiment which marks the Victorian era, but Swinburne finds the key to life in unrestraint instead of in restraint. There is a whole school of limp Greecism in England which has grown up out of Keats' Grecian urn and which is now buttressed with philosophy and adorned with scholarship. And no doubt it does bear some sort of relation to Greece and to Greek life. But this Anglican Grecism has the quality which all modern British art exhibits, the very quality which the Greeks could not abide. It is tinged with excess. The Briton likes strong flavors. He likes them in his tea, in his port wine, in his concert hall songs, in his pictures of home and farm life. He likes something unmistakable, something with a smack that lets you know that the thing has arrived. In his literature, he is the same. Dickens, Carlyle, Tennyson lay it on thick with sentiment. Keats drips with aromatic poetry, which has a wonder and a beauty of its own, and whose striking quality is excess. The scented wholesale sweetness of the modern ascetic school in England goes home to its admirers because it is easy art. Once enjoy a bit of it, and you never forget it. It is always the same, the old reliable, the Oxford brand, the true, safe, British, patriotic, moral, noble school of verse, which exhibits the manners and feelings of a gentleman, and has success written in every trait of its physiognomy. How this school of poetry invaded Greece is part of the history of British expansion in the 19th century. In the Victorian era, 
the Englishman brought cricket and morning prayers into South Africa. Robert Browning established himself and his carpet bag in comfortable lodgings on the Acropolis, which he spells with a K to show his intimate acquaintance with recent research. It must be confessed that Robert Browning's view of Greece never pleased, even in England. It was too obviously R.B. over again. It was Pippa and Bishop Blogram, with a few pomegranate seeds and unexpected orthographies thrown in. The Encyclopedia Britannica is against it, and suggests, wittily enough, that one can hardly agree with Browning that Heracles got drunk for the purpose of keeping up other people's spirits. So, also, Edward Fitzgerald was never taken seriously by the English. But this was for another reason. His translations are the best transcriptions from the Greek ever done by this British school. But Fitzgerald never took himself seriously. I believe that if he had only been ambitious and had belonged to the academic classes, like Jowett, for instance, he could have got Oxford behind him, and we should all have been obliged to regard him as a great apostle of Hellenism. But he was a poor-spirited sort of man, and never worked up his lead. Matthew Arnold, on the other hand, began the serious profession of being a Grecian. He took it up when there was nothing in it, and he developed a little sect of his own, out of which later came Swinburne and Gilbert Murray, each of whom is the true British article. While Swinburne is by far the greater poet, Murray is by far the more important of the two from the ethnological point of view. Murray was the first man to talk boldly about God and to introduce his name into all Greek myths, using it as a fair translation of any Greek adjective. There is a danger in this boldness. The reader's attention becomes hypnotized with wondering in what manner God is to be introduced into the next verse. The reader becomes so concerned about Mr. Murray's religious obsessions that he forgets the Greek altogether and remembers only Shakespeare's hostess in her distress over the dying Falstaff. Now I, to comfort him, bid him he should not think of God. I hope there was no need to trouble himself with any such thoughts yet. Murray and Arnold are twins in ethical endeavor. I think that it was Arnold who first told the British that Greece was noted for melancholy and for longings. He told them that chastity, temperance, nudity, and a wealth of moral rhetoric marked the young man of the Periclean period. Even good old Dean Plumtra has put this young man into his prefaces. Swinburne added the hymeneal note, the poetic nature view, of which the following may serve as an example. And the trees in their season brought forth and were kindled anew by the warmth of the mixture of marriage, the childbearing dew. There is hardly a page in Swinburne's Hellenizing verse that does not blossom with hymen. The passages would be well suited for use in the public schools of today, where sex knowledge in its poetic aspects is beginning to be judiciously introduced. This contribution of Swinburne's, the hymeneal touch, and Murray's discovery that the word God could be introduced with effect anywhere, 
went like wildfire over england they are characteristic of the latest phase of anglo-greecism gilbert murray has in late years had the field to himself he stands as the head and front of greek culture in england it is he more than anyone else who is the figurehead of dramatic poetry in england today and as such his influence must be met and as it were passed through by the american student who is studying the greek classics roman two the greek genius is so different from the modern english genius that they cannot understand each other how shall we come to see this clearly the matter is difficult in the extreme because we are all soaked in modern feeling and in america we are all drenched in british influence the desire of britain to annex ancient greece the deep-felt need that the english writers and poets of the nineteenth century have shown to edge and nudge nearer to greek feeling is familiar to all of us swinburne expresses his hellenic longings by his hymeneal strains matthew arnold by sweetness and light gilbert murray by sweetness and pathos and all through the divine right of victorian expansion it has been a profoundly unconscious development in all these men they have instinctively and innocently attached their little oil-can to the coattails of euripides and of the other great attic writers they have not been interested in greek for its own sake they have been interested in the exploitations of greece for the purpose of british consumption some people will contend that none of the writers of this school are properly speaking professional scholars others will contend that professional scholarship is tolerable only because it tends to promote a cultivation of a non-professional kind for example Jowett was never regarded as a scholar by the darkest dyed oxford experts and jeb of cambridge was undoubtedly regarded as an amateur in germany because he descends to making translations the severest classicist is able to talk only about texts he is too great to do anything else and yet properly speaking these men are all scholars murray represents popular scholarship to a degree which would have shocked matthew arnold just as arnold himself would have been poisoned to knock knock the author of the text of euripides but they are all scholars and murray who is an australian and who rose into university prominence on the wings of university extension and through his lyric gift rather than through his learning belongs to oxford by race and by nature as well as by adoption the outsider ought not to confuse him with the whole of oxford and the whole of oxford ought not to disown him after making him the head and front of its hellenism so far as the world at large can judge murray as st paul would say is not the inner oxford but murray is the outer oxford which the inner oxford cannot too eagerly sniff at or condemn because he is no accident but a true-bred oxonian of the imperial epoch the tendency of universities 
has ever been to breed cliques and secret societies to produce embroideries and start hothouses of specialized feeling they do well in doing this it is all they can do we should look upon them as great furnaces of culture largely social in their influence which warm and nourish the general temperament of a nation would that in america we had a local school of classic cultivation half as interesting as this oxford movement quaint and non-intellectual as it is it is alive and it is national while most absurd from the point of view of universal culture it is most satisfactory from the domestic point of view as indeed everything in england is if in america we ever develop any true universities they will have faults of their own their defects will be of a new strain no doubt and will reflect our national shortcomings these thoughts but teach us that we cannot use other people's eyes or other people's eyeglasses we have still to grind the lenses through which we shall in our turn observe the classics roman three ancient religion is of all subjects in the world the most difficult every religion even at the time it was in progress was always completely misunderstood and the misconceptions have increased with the ages they multiply with every monument that is unearthed if the eleusinian mysteries were going at full blast today so that we could attend them as we do the play at oberammergau their interpretation would still present difficulties. Momsen and Rode would disagree. But 10,000 years from now, when nothing survives except a line out of St. John's Gospel and a tablet stating that Fisher played the part of Christ for three successive decades, many authoritative books will be written about Oberammergau and reputations will be made over it anything which we approach as religion becomes a nightmare of suggestion and hails us hither and thither with thoughts beyond the reaches of the soul the alcestis and the bacchantes are in this paper approached with the idea that they are plays this seems not to have been done often enough with greek plays they are regarded as examples of the sublime as forms of philosophic thought as moral essays as poems even as illustrations of dramatic law and they are unquestionably all of these things but they were primarily plays intended to pass the time and exhilarate the emotions they came into being as plays and their form and makeup can best be understood by a study of the dramatic business in them they become poems and philosophy incidentally and afterwards they were born as plays a playwright is always an entertainer and unless his desire to hold his audience overpoweringly predominates he will never be a success it is probable that even with aeschylus who stands ors ligne as the only playwright in history who was really in earnest about morality we should have to confess that his passion as a dramatic artist came first he held his audiences by strokes of tremendous dramatic novelty both the stage traditions and the plays themselves bear this out the fact is that it is not easy to keep people sitting in a theatre 
and unless the idea of, of holding their attention predominates with the author, they will walk out, and he will not be able to deliver the rest of his story. In the grosser forms of dramatic amusement, for example, where a bicycle acrobat is followed by a comic song, we are not compelled to find philosophic depth of idea in the sequence. But in dealing with works of great and refined dramatic genius, like The Tempest or The Bacantes, where the emotions played upon are subtly interwoven, there will always be found certain minds which remain unsatisfied with the work of art itself, but must have it explained. Even Beethoven's sonatas have been supplied with philosophic addenda, statements of their meaning. We know how much Shakespeare's intentions used to puzzle the Germans. Men feel that somewhere at the back of their own consciousness there is a philosophy or a religion with which the arts have some relation. Insofar as these affinities are touched upon in a manner that leaves them mysteries, we have good criticism. But when people dogmatize about them, we have bad criticism. In the meantime, the great artist goes his way. His own problems are enough for him. The early critics were puzzled to classify the Alcestis, and no wonder, for it contains many varieties of dramatic writing. For this very reason, it is a good play to take as a sample of Greek spirit and Greek workmanship. It is a little Greek cosmos, and it happens to depict a side of Greek thought which is sympathetic to modern sentiment, so that we seem to be at home in its atmosphere. The Alcestis is thought to be in a class by itself, and yet, indeed, under close examination, every Greek play falls into a class by itself. There are only about 45 of them in all. And the maker of each was probably more concerned at the time with the dramatic experiment upon which he found himself launched than he was with any formal classification which posterity might assign to his play. In the Alcestis, Euripides made one of the best plays in the world, full of true pathos, full of jovial humor, both of which sometimes verge upon the burlesque. The happy ending is understood from the start, and none of the grief is painful. Alcestis herself is the good wife of Greek household myth, who is ready to die for her husband. To this play, the bourgeois takes his half-grown family. He rejoices when he hears that it is to be given. The absurdities of the fairy tale are accepted simply. Heracles has his club, death his sword. Apollo his lyre. The women wail. Admetus whines. There is buffoonery. There are tears. There is wit. There is conventional wrangling. And that word-chopping so dear to the Mediterranean theater, which exists in all classic drama and survives in the Punch and Judy show of today. And there is the charming return of Heracles with the veiled lady whom he presents to Admetus as a slave for safekeeping whom Admetus refuses to receive for conventional reasons, but whom every child in the audience feels to be the real Alcestis, even before Heracles unveils her and gives her back to her husband's bosom with speeches on both sides that are like the closing music of a dream. 
the audience disperses at the close feeling that it has spent a happy hour no sonata of mozart is more completely beautiful than the alcestis no comedy of shakespeare approaches it in perfection the merit of the piece lies not in any special idea it conveys but entirely in the manner in which everything is carried out roman four it is clear at a glance that the alcestis belongs to an epoch of extreme sophistication everything has been thought out and polished every ornament is a poem if a character has to give five words of explanation or of prayer it is done in silver the tone is all the tone of cultivated society the appeal is an appeal to the refined casuistical intelligence the smile of voltaire is all through greek literature and it was not until the age of louis the fourteenth or the regency that the modern world was again to know a refinement and a sophistication which we call the greek work now in in one word this subtlety which pleases us in matters of sentiment is the very thing that separates us from the greek upon the profoundest questions of philosophy where religious or metaphysical truth is touched upon either greek sophistication carries us off our feet with a rapture which has no true relation to the subject or else we are offended by it we do not understand sophistication the greek has pushed aesthetic analysis further than the modern can bear we follow well enough through the light issues but when the deeper questions are reached we lose our footing at this point the modern cries out in applause religion philosophy pure feeling the soul he cries out mystic cult asiatic influence nature worship deep things over there or else he cries what amazing cruelty what cynicism and yet it is none of these things but only the artistic perfection of the work which is moving us we are the victims of clever stage management the cruder intelligence is ever compelled to regard the man of complex mind as a priest or as a demon the child for instance asks about the character in a story but is he a good man or a bad man papa the child must have a moral explanation of anything which is beyond his aesthetic comprehension so also does the modern intelligence question the greek the matter is complicated by yet another element namely stage convention our modern stage is so different from the classic stage that we are bad judges of the greek playwright's intentions the quarrels which arise as to allegorical or secondary meanings in a work of art are generally connected with some unfamiliar feature of its setting a great light is thrown upon any work of art when we show how its form came into being and thus explain its primary meaning such an exposition of the primary or apparent meaning is often sufficient to put all secondary meanings out of court for instance it is as we know the germans who have found in shakespeare a coherent philosophic intention 
They think that he wrote plays for the purpose of stating metaphysical truths. The Englishman does not believe this, because the Englishman is familiar with the old English stage work. He knows its traditions, its preoccupation with storytelling, its, its mundane character, its obliviousness to the sort of thing that Germany has in mind. The Englishman knows the conventions of his own stage, and this protects him from finding mare's nests in Shakespeare. Again, Shakespeare's sonnets used to be a favorite field for mystical exegesis, until Sir Sidney Lee explained their form by reference to the 16th century sonnet literature of the continent. This put to flight many theories. In other words, the appeal to convention is the first duty of the scholar. But, unfortunately, in regard to the conventions of the classic stage, the moderns are all in the dark. Nothing like that stage exists today. We are obliged to make guesses as to its intentions, its humor, its relation to philosophy. If the classics had only possessed a cabinet-sized drama like our own, we might have been at home there. But this giant talk, this megaphone and buskin method, offers us a problem in dynamics which staggers the imagination. All we can do is to tread lightly and guess without dogmatizing. The typical Athenian, Euripides, was so much deeper dyed in skepticism that any one since that day that really no one has ever lived who could cross-question him, let alone expound the meanings of his plays. In reading Euripides, we find ourselves, at moments, ready to classify him as a satirist, and at other times as a man of feeling. Of course, he was both. Sometimes he seems like a religious man, and again like a charlatan. Of course, he was neither. He was a playwright. Roman V. The Bacantes, like every other Greek play, is the result, first, of the legend, second, of the theater. There is always some cutting and hacking due to the difficulty of getting the legend into the building. Legends differ as to their dramatic possibilities, and the incidents which are to be put on the stage must be selected by the poet. The site of the play must be fixed. Above all, a chorus must be arranged for. The choosing of a chorus is indeed one of the main problems of the tragedian. If he can hit on a natural sort of chorus, he is a made man. In the Alcestis, we saw that the whole background of grief and wailing was one source of the charm of the play. Not only are the tragic parts deepened, but the gayer scenes are set off by this feature. If the fable provides no natural and obvious chorus, the playwright must bring his chorus on the stage by stretching the imagination of the audience. He employs a group of servants, or of friends of the hero. If the play is a marine piece, he uses sailors. The whole atmosphere of his play depends upon the happiness of his choice. In the Agamemnon, the old men left at home form the chorus. There is enough dramatic power in this one idea to carry a play. It is so natural. The old men are on the spot. They are interested. They are the essence of the story, and yet external to it. 
these old men are indeed the archetype of all choruses a collection of bystanders a sort of little dummy audience intended to steer the great real audience into a comprehension of the play the greek dramatist found this very useful machine the chorus at his elbow but he was on the other hand greatly controlled by it it had ways of its own it inherited dramatic necessities the element of convention and of theatrical usage is so very predominant in the handling of greek choruses by the poets that we have in chorus work something that may be regarded almost as a constant quality by studying choruses one can arrive at an idea of the craft of greek playwriting one can even separate the conventional from the personal to some extent the greek chorus has no mind of its own it merely gives echo to the last dramatic thought it goes forward and back contradicts itself sympathizes with all parties or none and lives in a limbo its real function is to represent the slow-minded man in the audience it does what he does it interjects questions and doubts it delays the plot and indulges in the proper emotions during the pauses these functions are quite limited and were completely understood in greek times so much so that in the typical stock tragedy of the Aeschylean school certain saws maxims and reflections appear over and over again one of them of course was see how the will of the gods works out in unexpected ways another let us be pious and reverence something that is perhaps behind the gods themselves another this is all very extraordinary let us hope for the best another our feelings about right and wrong must somehow be divine traditional morality traditional piety are somehow right precisely the same reflections are often put in the mouths of the subordinate characters and for precisely the same purpose oh may the quiet life be mine give me neither poverty nor riches for the destinies of the great are ever uncertain temptation leads to insolence and insolence to destruction and so forth such reflections serve the same purpose by whomever they are uttered they underscore the moral of the story and assure the spectator that he has not missed the point as religious tragedy broadened into political and romantic tragedy the chorus gained a certain freedom in what might be called its interjectional duty its duty that is to say of helping the plot along by proper questions and so forth it gained also a protean freedom in its emotional interpretations during pauses the playwrights apparently discovered that by the use of music and dancing the most subtle and delicate nay the, the most whimsical varieties of lyrical mood could be conveyed to great audiences in spite of this license however the old duties of the chorus as guardians of conservative morality remained unchanged and the stock phrases of exhortation and warning remained de rigueur in the expectation of the audience their meaning had become so well known that by the time of aeschylus they were expressed in algebraic terms 
no man could today unravel a chorus of aeschylus if only one such chorus existed the truncated phrases and elliptical thoughts are clear to us because we have learned their meanings through reiteration and because they always mean the same thing the poet has a license to provide the chorus with dark sayings dark in form but simple in import it was indeed his duty to give these phrases an oracular character in the course of time such phrases became the terror of the copyists obscure passages became corrupt in process of transcription and thus we have inherited a whole class of choral wisdom which we understand well enough just as the top gallery understood it well enough to help us in our enjoyment of the play the obscurity and perhaps even some part of what we call corruption are here a part of the stage convention now with regards to the bacantes the scheme of having maenads for a chorus gave splendid promise of scenic effect and the fact that as a logical consequence these ladies would have to give utterance to the usual maxims of piety mixed in with the rhapsodies of their professional madness did not daunt euripides he simply made the chorus do the usual chorus work without burdening his mind about character drawing thus the maenads at moments when they are not pretending to be maenads and are not singing away to the mountains or the foot of the stag and so on are obliged to turn the other cheek and pretend to be interested bystanders old gaffers wagging their beards and quoting the book of proverbs the transition from one mood to the other is done in a stroke of lightning and seems to be independent of the music that is it seems to make no difference so long as the musical schemes are filled out whether the ladies are singing on with the dance let joy be unconfined or true wisdom differs from the sophistry and consists in avoiding subjects that are beyond a mortal comprehension all such discrepancies would no doubt have been explained if we possessed the music but the music is lost it seems at any rate certain that the grand public was not expected to understand the word-for-word -word meaning of choruses hence their license to be obscure we get the same impression from the jibes of aristophanes whose ridicule of the pompous obscurities of aeschylus makes us suspect that the audiences could not follow the grammar in the lofty parts of the tragedy they accepted the drum-roll of horror and understood the larger grammar of tragedy much as we are now forced to do in reading the plays it would seem that by following the technique of tragedy and by giving no thought to small absurdities euripides got a double effect out of his maenads and no one observed that anything was wrong in one place he resorts to a dramatic device which was perhaps well known in his day namely the conversion of a bystander after the first messenger has given the great description of dionysus doings in the mountains the chorus or one of them with overpowering yet controlled emotion steps forward and says i tremble to speak free words in the presence of my king yet nevertheless be it said dionysus is no less a god than the greatest of them this reference to the duty of a subject is probably copied from a case where the chorus was made up of local bystanders in the mouth of a maenad the proclamation is logically ridiculous 
yet so strange are the laws of what goes on the stage that it may have been effective even here some of the choruses in the bacchantes are miracles of poetic beauty of savage passion of liquid power it is hard to say exactly what they are but they are wonderful and behind all there gleams from the whole play a sophistication as deep as the aegean roman six there is one thing we should never do in dealing with anything greek we should not take a scrap of the greek mind and keep on examining it until we find a familiar thought in it no bit of greek art is to be viewed as a thing in itself it is always a fragment and it gets its value from the whole every bit of carved stone picked up in athens is a piece of architecture so is every speech in a play every phrase in a dialogue you must go back and bring in the whole theatre or the whole academy and put back the fragment in its place by means of ladders before you can guess at its meaning the inordinate significance that seems to gleam from every broken toy of greece results from this very quality that the object is a part of something else just because a thing has no meaning by itself it implies so much somehow it drags the whole life of the greek nation before you the favorite greek maxim avoid excess does the same it keeps telling you to remember yesterday and tomorrow to remember the palestra and the marketplace above all to remember that the very opposite of what you say is also true wherever you are and whatever doing you must remember the rest of the greek world it is no wonder that the greeks could not adopt the standards and contrivances of other nations while their own standards and contrivances resulted from such refined and perpetual balancing and shaving of values this refinement has become part of their daily life and whether one examines a drinking cup or a dialogue or a lyric and whether the thing be from the age of homer or from the age of alexander the fragment always gives us a glimpse into the same greek world the foundation of this world seems to be the myth and as the world grew it developed in terms of myth the greek mind had only one background athletics and statuary epic and drama religion and art skepticism and science expressed themselves through the same myths in this lies the fascination of greece for us what a complete cosmos it is and how different from any other civilization modern life like modern language is a monstrous amalgam a conglomeration and mess of idioms from every age and every clime the classic greek hangs together like a wreath it has been developed rapidly during a few hundred years and has an inner harmony like the temple language and temple each was an apparition each is in its own way perfect consider wherein rome differed from greece the life of the romans was a patchwork like our own their religion was formal their art imported their literature imitative their aims were practical their interests unimaginative all social needs were controlled by political considerations this sounds almost like a description of modern life and it explains why the romans are so close to us 
Cicero, Horace, Caesar, Antony are moderns. But Alcibiades, Socrates, Pericles, and the rest take their stand in Greek fable. Like Pisistratus, Solon, and Lycurgus, they melt into legend and belong to the realms of the imagination. No other people ever bore the same relation to their arts that the Greeks bore, and in this lies their charm. When the Alexandrian critics began to classify poetry and to discuss perfection, they never even mentioned the Roman poetry, although all of the greatest of it was in existence. Why is this? It is because no Roman poem is a poem at all from the Greek point of view. It is too individual, too clever, and generally too political. Besides, it is not in Greek. The nearest modern equivalent to the development of the whole Greek world of art is to be found in German contrapuntal music. No one except a German has ever written a true sonata or a symphony in the true polyphonic German style. There are tours de force done by other nationalities, but the natural idiom of this music is Teutonic. I am not condemning the Latins or the moderns. Indeed, there is in Horace something nobler and more humane than in all Olympus. The Greeks, moreover, seem in their civic incompetence like children when contrasted with the Romans or with the moderns. But in power of utterance, within their own crafts, the Greeks are unapproachable. Let us now speak of matters of which we know very little. The statues on the Parthenon stand in a region where direct criticism cannot reach them, but which trigonometry may to some extent determine. Their beauty probably results from an artistic knowledge so refined, a sophistication so exact, that as we gaze we lose the process and see only results. A Greek architect could have told you just what lines of analysis must be followed in order to get these effects, in grouping and in relief. It is all, no doubt, built up out of tonic and dominant. But the manual of counterpoint has been lost. As the tragic poet fills the stage with the legend, so the sculpture fills the metope with the legend. Both are closely following artistic usage. Each is merely telling the old story with new refinement. And whether we gaze at the actors on the stage or at the figures in the metope, whether we study a lyric or listen to a dialogue, we are in communion with the same genius, the same legend. The thing which moves and delights us is a unity. This genius is not hard to understand. Anyone can understand it. That is the proof of its greatness. As Boccaccio said of Dante, not learning, but good wits are needed to appreciate him. One cannot safely look toward the mind of the modern scholar for an understanding of the Greek mind, because the modern scholar is a specialist, a thing the Greek abhors. If a scholar today knows the acoustics of the Greek stage, that is thought to be a large enough province for him. He is not allowed to be an authority on the scenery. In the modern scholar's mind, everything is in cubbyholes, and everybody today wants to become an authority. Everyone, moreover, is very serious today. 
and it does not do to be too serious about greek things because the very genius of greece has in it a touch of irony which combines with our seriousness to make a heavy indigestible paste the greek will always laugh at you if he can and the only hope is to keep him at arm's length and deal with him in the spirit of social life of the world of the beau monde and of large conversation his chief merit is to stimulate this spirit the less we dogmatize about his works and ways the freer will the world be of secondary second-rate commentaries the more we study his works and ways the fuller will the world become of intellectual force the greek classics are a great help in tearing open those strong envelopes in which the cultivation of the world is constantly getting glued up they helped europe to cut free from the theocratic tyranny in the late middle ages they held the western world together after the fall of the papacy they gave us modern literature indeed if one considers all that comes from greece one can hardly imagine what the world would have been like without her the lamps of greek thought are still burning in marble and in letters the complete little microcosm of that greek society hangs forever in the great macrocosm of the moving world and sheds rays which dissolve prejudice making men thoughtful rational and gay the greatest intellects are ever the most powerfully affected by it but no one escapes nor can the world ever lose this benign influence which must so far as philosophy can imagine qualify human life forever end of the greek genius recording by gary grenholm